please turn your Bibles to the very first book, Genesis, the book of beginnings, in chapter 39. Chapter 39 of the book of Genesis. We started this summer series entitled New Lessons from Old Stories, and we've been exploring what God has for us, has to teach us through the life of Old Testament people. And today we'll continue with new lessons from the life of a man named Joseph. Let me read you today's text. Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put in, him in charge of his household and all, of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. And the blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the, house, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until... His master came home, and then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison... The Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This is the word of the Lord for us today. The first part of the book of Genesis, God is very audible, and he's very, very visual. And the narrator gives us 
the narrator of Genesis gives us the reader a vision of God and the voice of God. But when you get to the end of Genesis, right about where we're reading here, you get to the life of Joseph, and all of that is gone for some reason. There are no miracles, no visions anymore, no voice or appearance of God. And I, I think the reason for this is the point of the whole Joseph story is that with God, silence is not absence, and hiddenness is not impotence. It seems that where God is the most hidden, God is the most active. Today's text is about, of course, about temptation, and there are three temptations that we're going to cover today. So these are the three temptations of Joseph is what we're going to talk about today. The first is the subtle temptation of power. The subtle temptation of power. You could quickly miss this if you're reading through this chapter. I, I think we ask ourselves, where is Joseph in all of this? Well, he's been sold into slavery by his brothers to a man named Potiphar, who we are told is the captain of the guard. Now, in, in today's world, maybe the captain of the guard, it, it doesn't really translate well. It's, it's, in today's world, it's, it could be thought of as the captain of the guard, the head of a security detail or, or something like that. But Potiphar was probably like the commander-in-chief of the largest, strongest armed forces of that day. That's what the captain of the guard was all about. So this was a powerful man, and from one of the most powerful armies. This was the center of power, sort of the, the commander, the joint chiefs of staff in, in our day today. The question we have today is, how, how, do you, how do you use power? or How is power used? And we're going to look at two examples of power here. The first example is Potiphar's wife's power. Now, she was living in a powerful household, as you can imagine, the, the captain of the guard, the, the commander of the joint chiefs, and, and she lived in this power culture. And, and you read here in Genesis chapter 39, both in verses 7 and in, both in, in verses 7 and 12, she makes this statement to Joseph, this, this, uh, this line to Joseph, and we read it here in our English Bibles as what? It's, come to bed with me, is what, what she says here. And unfortunately, the English translation doesn't really do this phrase justice. It's come to bed with me is kind of a weak, weak phrase. In, in Hebrew, there are, are really, as you're reading this, there are only two words here, and it's emphatic, and it's a command, and it's, it's sort of in your face. It's sort of, uh, it's, it's too forward, really, for us to, to use these words. But if we were to read this in Hebrew, if we were Hebrews reading this, these two words of emphatic command would be sort of like, not come to bed with me, which is really easy. It would be sort of like, like sex, now. That's what it would be like, exactly. It's like, down, now. You know, it's, it's that sort of a thing. And it seems kind of gross to us, but that's the power household that Potiphar's wife was a part of. It's about sex, but really more, it's about power here. The habits of her life have been corrupted by the power culture that she lives in. And of course, this is a betrayal of her husband, but it appears that she gets, she's getting used to, or she's used to getting everything and anything that she wants. Our first example is Potiphar's wife. Our second example, of course, is Joseph. And... Um, in Genesis chapter 39, verse 4, you, we, we read that Joseph also has power. It, don't be fooled also with Joseph's title, as the captain of the guard is kind of this strange, 
you know, uh, uh, title for Potiphar, Joseph's title is interesting in, in verse 4. It's he's an what? An attendant, right? Now, it, it, it seems kind of strange to become just an attendant, but it's the same word to describe Joshua's relationship with Moses. We'll cover that in a little bit. The attendant Joseph was more like the chief operation, operating officer of a major corporation. But notice how Joseph uses his power. Take a look at verse 5. It says, From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord, what, blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. Joseph used his power so that a society that did not worship his God and did not acknowledge his God was blessed by the use of his power. So what's the lesson here that we can take out of Joseph's life and this temptation of power? Well, one lesson is this. Let me give you an example. If, if you were to go to Barnes & Noble bookstore over there in Delamo or go to Amazon.com or a Christian bookstore or something like that, and you were to say, give me the bestseller on a biography, and, and let's say you came across a book that was entitled The Man That God Uses or The, or the Woman That God Uses, what would that book be about, a, a biography about the man that God uses or the woman that God uses? Well, in our minds, we would probably think, if you're a church person, probably think, well, it's about a, a great pastor or a, an evangelist or a great missionary or, or a great preacher. So who taught you to think this way? The church did, unfortunately. But the lesson here is this, that you have Joseph who has become a successful and powerful businessman. And he's not a professional clergyman. See, God is, willing to, God is willing to use a man or a woman in every sphere of their life. Whether you're an engineer or you're a businessman or, or you're a homemaker or you're a student or you're a teacher or you're in the arts, he's willing to use you right where you're at. And we've been conditioned sort of in the church that if you have musical gifts... Well, we, you, you've got to go and lead worship. If you have communication gifts, well, you should be a preacher. You know, if, 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 if you're uh, uh, good with kids, well, we need you in Nova Kids. It's, it's an immediate, we need to get you involved in, in something in the church and raise you to some sort of a professional level, which is how God uses people, but not always. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham that through his family line, he's going to bless all the nations. And the very first person we read about in the Bible after God says that to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the fulfillment of, the, of that promise to this person is Joseph the businessman. And later Joseph will use his well-developed leadership administrative skills to mount a massive hunger relief program that will save a nation and restore him to his family. And that's how God uses Joseph in the power that Joseph possesses. Joseph uses power, but was not used by power. An another example, just to make this clear, is, is, I, is I, I, I hear this quite often. I, a couple moves into the South Bay, and, um, and they're looking to buy a home. And so they go to a real estate agent, and the real estate agent, the first thing that they say, and you've made maybe many of you have experienced this, the real estate agent will say, well, what's your take-home pay? What's your income? Because we need to produce a pre-what? 
pre-qualification letter or something. We need to give you some sort of a certificate to tell you how big of a house you can buy, right? What, what sort of house that you can buy and, and what sort of area that you could buy. And so I, I, I've heard of this, and I've heard of this many times, that especially this one couple, they tell the real estate agent how much their take-home pay is. The real estate agent provides them a letter, and they say, this is how much you could afford. It's the outer limit of things, right? And so this couple goes and buys this house, a beautiful home in a beautiful area. And when they try to get connected to a local church, they could not tithe, they could not give, they could not serve. They were so anxious about making that mortgage payment. In the world, money is a form of power. And buying a house to the limit of your income is living out to the margins. It's abuse of that power. I also met a couple on the flip side of that. I met a couple here at, at Nova who was considering buying a home. They went to a real estate agent, same thing, the real estate agent says, what's your take home? And the, the real estate agent puts it through a calculator, gives them a letter that says, this is what your pre-qualification amount. And the couple sees that, but they decide to live in a place that they, that's less than what they could afford so that they can give more, that they could serve more, and that they can not worry about their finances and live in a community that's a lower socioeconomic community than what they could afford so that they can serve and connect with their community. You see, the world just assumes that your money is there to bless you and your power is only for you. So you stretch your life out to the margins. But don't be co-opted by the world's view of power. Your power, the world would say, your power is for you. The Bible would say your power is to bless others. The first temptation that Joseph encounters or that we encounter here in Genesis chapter 39 is the, the temptation of power. The second is this prominent temptation of sex. And this is what, when we read chapter 39, this is what we sort of hone in on here. This is the attention-getter temptation of the three. The Bible talks about every much a bit about uh, with money and power as it does about sex. But if you look at chapter 39, starting in verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. And then verse 18, How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God, Joseph said. And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Now Potiphar's wife says, please come to bed with me. Actually, she didn't say please, as we know. She sort of, sort of commands him in a powerful way, come to bed with me. Joseph says no to having sex with her, and he calls it a wicked thing in sin. We find that in verse 9. Now, let's take a step back and ask ourselves, why would sex be a wicked thing in sin? Well, the answer to that is because she is married to another, but also that she is not married to Joseph. If you want to find scripture that speaks to the biblical sex ethic, just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul does a little play as he writes about this to the Corinthian church, a little play on, on Joseph's story. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, Paul writes, do you, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, verse 18, but flee from sexual immorality. You are not your own. 
You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Here's the principle found in verse 16, that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it is said the two will become one flesh. Now, he's not writing about adultery specifically per se, but he's talking about two people who are not married to one another or to anyone else, and sex is still wrong. Why is sex wrong here? Is sex sinful? Of course not, because sex is designed to create one flesh. There's a a Bible scholar named Thistleton, and he wrote an excellent commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me read you what he says here. He says, when Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one flesh, he takes it to cover all sexual intercourse. Instead of devaluing sex, the opposite comes about. Paul was far ahead of first century cultural assumptions in perceiving the sex act should be one of complete self-commitment that involves the whole person, not merely the manipulation of body parts. In context, Paul is saying you must only give yourself to the one to whom you completely belong. Now, this is Southern California 2012, isn't it? And so let me make this really clear. How how about that? And if you're a little uncomfortable talking about sex, sorry, here here we go. Sex is created by God to say to someone else, I belong completely and exclusively to you. That's how, that's how God created sex. In, in every aspect of my being, socially, economically, legally, emotionally, spiritually, I belong to you. That's what sex is all about. And when physical vulnerability and oneness is an expression of whole life vulnerability and oneness, that is, if physical union is an expression of who you are for your whole life, then sex always deepens trust. And if you have sex outside of marriage, what you're saying is, I want physical oneness, but I don't want to have whole life oneness with you. That's not what it's about. You're saying if you have sex outside of marriage, I want you, but I don't want to entrust myself to you. you. You see, so have some sexual integrity out there. Don't live your life independently, but give yourself fully to somebody. Sex is God's invention for complete life entrustment. If you use sex for the satisfaction of the moment, you weaken your ability to do complete entrustment with another person now and in the future. And that's why Joseph ran. That's why Joseph ran. And that's why Paul says, flee from it. So maybe some of you are out there, and and I'm sensing it now. You're you're saying, well, I feel a little guilty, Dean. My intention is not to make you feel guilty. But I'm trying to persuade you to think of sex in a different way. I know that this view of sex is not popular in our Southern California culture. And I want you to consider something very different. I wish you would be more open-minded to this. Maybe some of you are thinking, 
this is ridiculous, pastor. You can't be serious. You know what's interesting is what we often hear when Christian moral values are discussed. You, you often hear, don't push your religion on me. Or you often hear, um, how arrogant can you be to talk about sex in this way? Don't raise your religion above all other religions. Can't we seek to find something more in common with all the religions? Well, okay, here's the one common denominator that all major religions have. Did you know that? Do you realize that one of the few values that all ma major religions have in common is the sex ethic, that you should never have sex outside of total life commitment? You know how hard it is to get consensus on all the major religions on something? This is it right here. And you say, how ridiculous. So uh, let, let's get back to this. How does Paul resist then? How does Paul resist this temptation? This, this, here's a, this is a great surprise here. Most people think that to resist this sort of temptation, you need to use self-control, right? You need to, it's a matter of the will. The Greeks believe this, the Buddhists believe this, secular psychologists believe. It's just a matter of the will to resist something like this. And this is the way most people think. We look at the hearts and the many desires that our hearts get us into trouble, and we use self-control to suppress we hold down these desires, and we push them down, and we think our will will take charge of the heart. This isn't what Joseph does, though, if you notice this. Joseph is not looking inside to suppress his desires. He's looking outside to enhance his desire for God. What is Joseph's ultimate argument against having sex with Potiphar's wife? Well, take a look at this. He says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? When I read that, I think... That, that's strange to me. But here's what he does. He doesn't look inside and suppress his desires for her. He looks outside and says, I'm going to enhance my desire for God. Ultimately, if you look inside to suppress your desire, you can get into trouble, and you're going to cave in eventually. A, a few weeks ago, I talked about this guy named Jacob, remember, and his obsession with Rachel, this, this woman. And Jacob fell in love with Rachel, but in order to get, get her, he had to work seven years of hard labor. And, and you can imagine, you know, as he's working, he wants some time off. He wants maybe a vacation. Benefits would help, you know, a raise, medical, dental, what, whatever. All those things would help Jacob, right? But he works seven years in hard labor for her. And then he says this, or it says this in Genesis 29. He says, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days for her, uh, for him because of his love for her. And we all think, well, that's wonderful. But you see... Jacob had the normal vocational desires that all of us have when we work. We want a holiday. We want some time off. We want a promotion. We want better working conditions. He wanted all of these things, but not like he wanted Rachel. He wanted Rachel far more than he wanted all those things. He had many desires, but none, none like the desire he had for her. In fact, his desire for Rachel put all the other desires in the proper place. So self-control is not merely desire being suppressed. Instead, it's all the desires and loves being reordered by the one and only supreme love that we have. And that's what Joseph's doing. At, you know, as 21st century people, we have something great here. There is one like Joseph that had a palace. 
There was someone that we know about, like Joseph, who had an exalted position. In fact, he had the eternal glory of God. And Joseph, you see, Joseph points us to Jesus. Like Joseph, Jesus lost it all. Isaiah 53 tells us that he lost his beauty, that he had no majesty to attract us to him. Like Joseph, Jesus was also powerfully tempted to turn away from his mission, but he didn't. Like Joseph, he was falsely accused, numbered with a guilty, even though he wasn't guilty. Like Joseph, Jesus refused temptations. And like Joseph, Jesus was willing to lay down his life. And here's why. You, 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 if you get anything today, you've got to get this. Here's why. Because we are the supreme desire of Jesus' heart. He did not give in to the temptation because we're his supreme passion. We're the reason he was willing to endure temptation to suffer the cross. All the desires and loves of Jesus were reordered by this one and only supreme love and desire that is us to the glory of God. The longing of every one of you, every human being that walks the face of this earth, the longing for every human being is to hear someone say, I find you valuable and I'll give my life for you. The longing of every human heart is, is to have someone say to you, I find you beautiful and I give myself to you. I find you significant and I give myself to you. And if Jesus is your supreme desire, then all the other desires of your heart will be ordered and they'll know its place. What we find here are three temptations. The subtle temptation of power, the prominent temptation of sex, and the third, the last one, and we'll do this real quickly, the difficult temptation of despair. This is perhaps the hardest temptation of all. You see, when you read chapter 39, you know that Joseph made all the right moves. And in Genesis 37, you know, we, Pastor Dave talked about it last week, Dave, Joseph was a spoiled brat, he was arrogant, he was a loudmouth, and, and his brother sold him into slavery. And you could read that and say, you know, he... He brought all that on himself. But in our chapter today, he's being promoted, he's given responsibility, he's being tempted, he's resisting temptation, things are not going well. And, and Potiphar's wife is upset and enraged that Joseph resisted her command. We find that in, in verses 17 through 20. But the hardest temptation here is a temptation to despair. And when you have resisted all other temptation and your life still goes bad, that's a difficult place to be. And if you've ever felt like that, you know what Joseph's feeling when you think you're doing everything right and God lets something bad happen to you and you think, was it all worth it? But we have this old story. If you ever find yourself in that spot, we have this old story. You and I have a perspective on Joseph's life because we can read the story from one part to the next, and we could see the end of the story. And we know what God can do in our own life because of Joseph's story. I, I think it's interesting. If Potiphar's wife did not lie about Joseph and get him thrown into prison, then Joseph would never have met the king's prisoners. We'll hear about that in the weeks to follow. Joseph's going to prison. 
and meeting the king's prisoners is key to the success with what's going to happen next here. God does not just help Joseph in spite of the tragedy. Get this. God saves him through the tragedy. Notice how the narrator begins and ends chapter 39 as we end our time today. He begins in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And peppered throughout this chapter, the Lord was with Joseph. But he bookends it and closes the chapter with the same phrase, the Lord was with him. So what does this mean? For us today, come what may, no matter what, nothing can derail God's behind-the-scenes care for those that put our trust in him. So I want you to never forget, Joseph, that he was not perfect and he had some bad moments and he had some good moments, but he is just like you and me as we read his story. God had an ultimate plan for Joseph's life and he has an ultimate plan for you. God had an ultimate plan for Joseph's life And for all of us here today, we know that God has an ultimate plan for you. Amen. Let's all stand for the benediction. Now may God bless you and may he keep you. May you use your power to bless others. May you make him your ultimate desire. And may you set aside temptation to despair as you discover that God is with you. In the name of the one and only true God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.